0: Well, hey, everybody. How y'all doing? Yeah. Uh, here we are, week two. Well, kind of week one, kind of officially. We'll call it week two, right? Uh, it's good to see you all. Yeah, it's good to be back with you all. Uh, my name's Jonathan. I'm the campus minister with uh, RUF, Reform University Fellowship. I think I've met most of you, but if I haven't, come introduce yourself to me. I'd, uh, I'd love to try and learn your name. Um, I promise I will eventually. So just give me, give me a chance. Um, Especially welcome to those of you who are either new or coming back to large group. Um, I'm really, this is too high now. Uh, It's really good to see you all uh, back and um, yeah, I'm glad you're here. So uh, like I said, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus minister with RUF. Um, I'd love to get to know you in whatever capacity you are comfortable. Uh, I like to climb at the climbing wall. I like to hang off the climbing wall. I really suck at that. So if you just want to do something casual, we can do that. But if you're also interested, we could um, I'll grab a cup of coffee with you, um, just get to know you a little bit more. We don't have to do anything super intense. Um, if that's intimidating, um, yeah, we can do something else. But I know that some people are like, hey, I have questions about faith and spirituality and life, sexuality, relationships. Um, I'd love to avail myself to you um, in that way if you're interested Two quick things I do want to plug first uh, before we dig into our text tonight is first, small groups. Small groups are starting up this week. Hey, I really, really encourage you to, if you have time, get into a small group. They're great. Um, Small groups, I know this can feel like super overwhelming and also kind of like, all right, I met you and I won't see you again for maybe two weeks, maybe a week, maybe three weeks if I come back. Um, Small groups are a really great way to... Get to know people in Ruf in a more intimate way, in a more vulnerable way, which is simultaneously really scary and I'm going to be honest, really good. Uh, I had a small group in college, which I can honestly say I'm alive because of that group. I, you know, life happens. I was super depressed in college, and there were some guys who walked with me through hard stuff. So. Um, encourage you to do that. Sign up sheets going around, uh, do that. Second thing, fall conference, September 13 to 15, really encourage you to go to that. It's so much fun. Um, It's got, like, we're going to have, I think I said last week, we've got a shooting range and a climbing wall and, like, s'mores and giant bonfire and great teaching if you're interested. A bunch of different campus ministers are going to be talking through pieces of the Bible, so they're way better than me, so I encourage you to come to that. Uh, We have scholarships. If you're like, I want to go, but I can't afford it, talk to me, talk to Madeline, talk to Deborah. We can make it happen. So do not let money be why you wouldn't go. Uh, we, can make, we can make it happen. Uh, Sign-ups were going around, that's just an interest sign-up. We'll be in contact, or you can actually sign up, like for realsies, uh, at the end of large groups. So, okay, enough of that. Uh, let's dig into the Word of God tonight. And so last week, if you remember you were here, uh, you remember that we've been, we've been looking through the, um, we're going to look through this semester the Gospel of John which is a book that was written by the Apostle John, who's one of Jesus' followers. And in it, he's trying to chronicle, he's trying to describe who is Jesus, and why does he matter, and what did he do, and how, if it's actually what it claims to be, that is God's word, does it apply to our lives today and the way that we go about our classes and the way that we go about our relationships and our friendships. And so that's why we're picking through this, Um, Last week, we saw how the Word became flesh. That is how God, the infinite, eternal God, became a human being in a space in time. 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus Christ. And how, in doing so, He enters into our mess, into our brokenness, into our world. And in His incarnation, starts to actually fix things. Starts to make our world... um, a little bit better place to be, and ultimately how he will fix all things. Well, today, we're going to continue that process, and we're going to look at basically, okay, Jesus, John says this bold claim about Jesus, He's, and you know, some of us are like, well, prove it. All right, if Jesus is God's, God himself, God's son, prove it. How, what, what are you going to do, Jesus, to demonstrate that this is actually real, that you're legit? And so John says, well, sh- all right, let me tell you. Let me tell you what I saw him do that proves... That he is, in fact, God's son. And so what we're going to see tonight is a sign. That's the word that John will use. A sign as a preview and an illustration of the bigger work that Jesus is trying to do and has done and why that still matters today. So if uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2 or the uh, text is in front of you on your bulletin. So we're going to start at the very beginning of John 2 and read the first 11 verses. So look with me at your bulletin or your Bible. This is God's Word. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Would you all pray with me quickly? Father in heaven, thanks for the opportunity to gather together again tonight uh, to worship you, to be pushed and stretched in how we sing and maybe ways that are new and foreign, um, but also to sing old songs that we know well that are still good for the mind and the heart. Thank you that we can pray that you listen and care about our world and even our classes. And thank you now, Lord, that we can open your word and see how your word, the scripture, continues to speak and apply to our lives. Give us courage and confidence now, and would your spirit work through this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've just read a story of what Jesus has done. Let's recap it. Let's see what happens here. So, you know, it it makes pretty good sense. Jesus, you know, Jesus is going to a wedding party. Great. Sounds like a lot of fun. Jesus goes to a wedding. And uh, it's a real party. <laughs> How do we know it's a real party? Because they ran out of wine. <laughs> they run out of wine. How many of y'all been to a wedding that has a wine at it or alcohol? Normally there's a lot there. Well, same thing back in the day. In fact, weddings would last for an entire week. So it's like it's, like a, it's a real bender. <laughs> like, like it's a week of partying, celebrating this wedding, and they run out of booze. Imagine that you go to a wedding and, it, like, all of a sudden, you look around and everyone's glasses are dry, and you're like, "Ooh, that's a real buzzkill," <laughs> and it starts to get awkward, right? Like, everyone starts to, like whisper, like, "They're out," and everyone's like, "Ooh, we still got three days left. What are we gonna do?" <laughs> you know? So it's like people are starting like, "What do we do?" And so all of a sudden, you know, like maybe the bride and the groom or like someone, the maid of honor, comes up and whispers like, "Um." We're out of wine. Well, what are you supposed to, you know? Like, so all of a sudden it gets really embarrassing, right? For this bride and groom, they're like, "Oh God, what are we gonna do?" You know, and and, and you know, there's no, there's no celebrate wine just around the corner to go do a, a beer run or anything, you know, like that. Where, where it's a real pickle. So it's like it's awkward. It's really awkward. It's kind of cringy. You're just like, "What do we do?" We're out of wine. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus. Is aware of this. So she basically comes up to Jesus and Jesus has not done anything miraculous. He's kind of like, well, I mean, he's kind of remarkable in that he's never sinned. But like she goes to him and says like, hey, go fix this. Go for a beer run. Like make this this better. And Jesus responds in kind of a brusque way. He says, woman, what has this got to do with me? Now, the woman here is not quite as harsh in uh, the Greek. It's more like ma'am. So he's like, but it's still kind of distancing himself from her. He's like, woman, this is, not my, this is not my beeswax. Like, I don't have anything to do with this. I'm just a guest. And then he says something really interesting. He says, my hour has not yet come. And Mary, is, uh, his mother, says, ah, okay. But then she's like, maybe something will happen. So she tells the servants, whatever he says, do it. And it's interesting because when, uh, when, uh, when he says here, my hour has not yet come, that kind of like ups the tension in the narrative a little bit, right? We're all kind of like, oh, something's about to happen. Like you can just like feel like what's about to, st- what's about to happen in this story? And John is subtly signaling that something is about to happen. Something is really, something's about to happen. It ups the tension. So then what happens? Well, Jesus goes to the waiters and he tells some of the waiters, hey, there's these stone jugs. Go fill them with water." I'm like, okay. So they go and they fill them with water, fill them to the brim, and now he tells them, hey, take it to the head waiter, the guy who's in charge of the whole wedding. And you can imagine them be like, don't do that. But somehow, miraculously, in between verses 8 and 9, they, they turn into wine, right? Which is miraculous. Like, you can't explain it. It's, it's a bit foreign. And, and uh, the head waiter tastes it. He's like, this is really good. This is good stuff. And the party continues and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And, and then all of a sudden in verse 11, we start to get into the inside story about what's actually happening here. Verse 11, we get to the inside and John starts to tell us a little bit. And what does he tell us in verse 11? He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Galilee and manifested his glory. So there it is. John is saying, okay, something just happened significant that I want you to pay attention to. Some sign just went down and it's really important. So that's what we're going to pay attention to is these signs. Now in the book of John, Jesus does seven signs, seven of these signs, and we're actually going to look at all of them over the next semester. This is the first one. So all of the signs that Jesus does are miraculous in nature. They're all something that just doesn't happen in the natural world. Um, they're all miraculous actions that Jesus does, but they po- it's not just that Jesus is just like flexing spiritually. It's just like, watch this, wine. You know? <laughs> it's that Jesus—it wasn't that funny, but <laughs> Jesus does this, but it's to point to something else. It's to point—he does a miracle, but he says this points to something else, just like a sign does. It indicates, it signifies something else. The points of the signs are not just random acts of power; they point to something significant. And Jesus wants us—I mean, sorry, John wants us as the readers—to pay attention to what these signs point towards. So, as an illustration, uh, a couple of years ago, I went and visited the Grand Canyon. And it was, a, um, you know, it's, a, it's miraculous. I don't know, I mean, not like this kind of miraculous, but it's really significant. So I don't know if, how many of y'all have been to the Grand Canyon before, but you go to the main visitor center, and you're like, there's a ditch here? I don't see anything. You know, there's not a, there's not a whole lot to see. There's just a lot of pinion trees. And, um, but then you start seeing signs like Grand Canyon this way, North View this way. And, and you're like, oh, okay, I'll follow the signs. So the signs themselves are not why you go to the Grand Canyon. That would be absurd. But the signs point to and direct us towards the really marvelous thing. They point us to the glory. They direct our vision and our bodies to the main event, which is the Grand Canyon. And that's exactly how the signs in John's Gospel operate. They do the exact same thing that Jesus' miraculous signs point us to something greater, something more glorious. So what does the sign point to? What is it something that it actually points to? Well, the key here is, I think, is in the word hour. Look again at verse 4. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Now, what does that mean? Why is that in any way significant? Or how does that refer to uh, the sign? So, um... To understand that, you have to understand how John uses that word "hour" in his book, and he uses that word "hour" all over the place in his book, and he uses it in a very special and significant way. Right? We do this, you know, in any great work of literature. A good author will use language in a way that's more than just conveying the information, but does so in an artful or in a, um, a, literarily beautiful way. And John does that a lot here, and he with this word "hour." Jesus refers to over and over again in the book of John his hour. And he's constantly saying, it's not yet my hour. It's not time yet. My hour has not yet come. But it's coming. My hour is coming. And then something very significant happens in John chapter 12, where Jesus, all of a sudden, something changes and he says, my hour has come. My hour has come. And he says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And then he says, it's time for me to be lifted up. And by, what he means by that is he says, it's time for me to be crucified. And he says, my hour is the time for me to be crucified. So the hour is Jesus' way of referring to his whole mission, the reason why he came to earth. The reason that he came to earth was to die on a cross as the sacrificial Lamb of God for the sins of the world, and to rise again for the salvation of those who believe. Now, this is all over the book of John. Like, for example, if you have a Bible, you can look in John 1, just before this, just before what we're looking at. And Jesus' cousin sees Jesus walking down. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just after this story, in John chapter 3, the most John gives us the most famous book in the whole, sorry, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. What is it? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So when we combine these three ideas together, Lamb of God, our, gave his son, what do we get? We see that Jesus came to earth to die for the world's sin to even die for our sin, to perish so that we need not perish, to suffer where we would or should have suffered so that we can live, right? That, and, and here's the thing, that all of that, all of that is distilled and sunk down into when Jesus says, my hour, my hour has not yet come. So when Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, he's saying in here in John 2, it is not time for me to remove sin from the world in my death. But, but, and here's where the story gets impo- impo- interesting. He says, but I'm going to show you what it's going to be like with my sign. By turning water into wine, I'm going to show you a piece of what my hour is going to look like. I'm going to show you by turning water into wine, a piece of What my mission is like. Does that make sense? That's complicated, but John is artfully and in a beautiful way weaving this together. He's saying, This is my sign at the Grand Canyon to point towards the real event. Okay, so then how does that work? How does wine, how does him turning wine into water into wine, point to? Why he's coming. How does that matter? Well, it's significant in at least two major ways. In two ways. First, that his death on the cross, the wine points to his blood being poured out. He says, my blood, and we see this all over scripture, that wine is a symbol of blood. So he says, when I'm making wine, I'm pointing to my blood the new wine that's coming. He says, I am the Lamb of God, who, the new wine, the new Lamb who comes and takes away the sin. There's this old way that we dealt with sin in the Old Testament. That doesn't work. It never could. Here is the new wine, the new blood that comes and finally deals with sin. So he says, that's my hour. That my hour is when I, make, when I show you the new wine is how I deal with sin. But there's more than that. The wine also points to not just Jesus' death, but it also points to his resurrection. And in the book of Revelation, John writes about Jesus, the risen Savior, preparing a giant wedding feast, a giant wedding feast to celebrate his victory over sin and evil. And he invites all of those who believe in him to come and party, to come and celebrate with God and with each other. So this is important. Jesus makes wine at a wedding. He doesn't just make wine on his marketplace. He makes wine at a wedding. And he's saying, part of what I'm pointing towards is that history is driving towards both my death, but not just my death, but my resurrection and the glory and the party, the wedding celebration that is going to be after that in my resurrection. And so the, the party keeps going. And this is significant because Jesus makes a lot of really good wine. He makes a lot of really good wine. So he says here he makes six jars which hold about 20 to 30 gallons. You do the math, that's approximately 700 bottles of wine. (laughs) Jesus makes 700 bottles of wine for a party. That's a ton of wine. And not only that, it's the good wine. It's the good stuff. Look at verse 10. The head waiter says, bro, good job, to the, to the groom. He says, most people get their wedding party loosened up on the good stuff, on the reserve, but then they give them the two-buck chuck when they're already drunk. You, you, you know, You gave us this stuff here, but now you've got the French reserve wine. This is the good stuff. And Jesus is saying, I'm the good wine. I make lots of it, strap in for an awesome party that's coming down the road after my resurrection. For those who believe in Christ, he says, man, there's a party coming. There's a party coming with my resurrection. So what's the point? That Jesus makes superior wine to point to his resurrection and that his resurrection will inaugurate the perfect wedding party, the celebration for all who believe. Now, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Well, if this is true, then that all who follow Jesus... All of us who say, yeah, I think I'm a a Christian. I've said this before. We should be really good partiers. We as Christians should be really good at partying. Why? Because our Lord is really good at partying. He is the Lord of the party. He made 700 bottles of wine. We should be good at partying because our Lord is good at partying. Now, does that mean that we go out and get drunk on a Friday night? No. Scripture is very clear that alcohol abuse is a sin but we should lose this idea that Christians have to just be uptight dour stodgy no jesus is driving us towards in his he's pointing us towards a time when he says there's going to be a party like you wouldn't believe and we as Christians we practice for that when we party when we celebrate y'all you know, when we go to a pool party on on, on saturday night we're practicing for heaven we don't just do a pool party for that. Just I mean, we do, but, but we're practicing for heaven. <laughs> we're anticipating... I don't know what happened. I said something weird. We're practicing, we're anticipating, we're rehearsing for the final awesome party that Jesus is bringing to us. That heaven is not just eternal singing and choiring and white robes and halos, but it's an awesome party anticipating and rejoicing in what Christ has done. So here's the thing. The sign points to two things at the same time. It, the sign first points, first of all, to Jesus' death. And it says, here is wine, here is blood that is poured out to deal with sin. And here is wine to anticipate and look forward to the final party. The sign points us both to Jesus' death and to his resurrection victory. The wine points to Jesus anticipating his hour where he will die and shed his blood for your and my sins. And the wine points us to Jesus rising from the dead and bringing all who believe in him to the eternal wedding feast. It shows us how Jesus is completely showing himself to be God because look, only God could pull all this off. First of all, only God can turn water into wine. And if you have questions about, like, how, is this, how do miracles happen? I don't want to delve into that because it's a huge conversation. But if you have questions about that, please come talk to me. How do miracles happen? I'd love to talk with you about it. But only if it can happen, only God can do it. And if, 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 if wine can point to the death, and re- death of Jesus and if wine can point to the resurrection party of Jesus, only God can do that. So what's his point? Jesus is saying, I'm God. There is no other way around this. I am God. And that's what verse, seven, uh, verse 11 says. It says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory. That's John speak for saying, he said, I'm God. I am God. I am here to die for your sins. I am here to raise myself from the dead. And I'm here to save you and bring you to the wedding party. Now, what are you going to do about it? Jesus slaps his cards on the table and says, what are you going to do with what I've just done in this sign? Okay, so if this is true, Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm here to save you. I'm here to bring you to the final party. How does that matter? If it's true that Jesus made water from wine, first to point us to his death and second to point us to the party, how are we to respond? How does that matter to you and I right now? Well, look at verse 11 again. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. His disciples believed in Him. Now, what does that mean? It means that when we witness Jesus' miracle signs, when 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 we see them first as what they are and to the spiritual truths that they point us to, we, like the disciples, they should move us to a place of trusting, they should move us to a place of believing and saying like, yeah, I see. I see what John is talking about here, that, that, that only God can do this. That God is actually present with us in the person and the work of Jesus. That he actually does die for our sins and rise again to bring us into the final party. That we, like the disciples, either for the first time or anew, should see that Jesus alone is God, that he suffers and dies for our sins and that he arose again. So the reality is is that there is really only two groups when it comes to, you know, two groups of people when it comes to Jesus. There's a lot of diversity in this room. There's a lot of diversity in this campus. There's ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, majors, languages, races, all kinds of people. And when it comes down to Jesus, there's only two groups. John's fairly clear on this. He says, with respect to Jesus, there are those who believe that Jesus is God who takes away the sin of the world and will bring those who believe him into the re- resurrection feast and those who don't. That's what John says. And he challenges us. He says, what, what group are you in? Jesus slaps his card on the table and said, you've got to make a decision. Do you think I'm God? Do you buy it? Do you buy the witness? Do you buy the sign that I'm doing here? So I'll turn up the HEDA group a little bit here and say, what group are you in? Jesus here, John is showing us here that Jesus is unequivocally God. And he says, do you buy it? Are you in? Will you trust that he is God? That he loves you so much that he would die to take away your sin? Ask ask yourself, where am I? Do I believe it? If not, why not? Some of you who would say, like, I can't get over the miracle, Jonathan. I can't get over the physics. How does something that is H2O become something that is ethanol? I can't get over that. Let's talk about it. The text says that happens. Let's talk about that. Some of you say, I, can't, I don't see a need for a Savior. I look at my own life, I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't need that. John, John would di- differ. John would say, no, you do. Let's talk about that, too. Some of you say, like, I see Jesus as a great teacher, but not as a Savior. Let's engage those questions. We want RUF to be a place where you can say, like, I have real questions about this Christian faith. <laughs> I think the faith is strong enough to stand up to your questions. I really do. So let's engage those fa- questions. But some of you, some of you are Christians. And to John and to you, John would say, believe anew. Not in the sense of getting saved again, but in the sense of, behold this miracle And see anew that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, and that he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That giving means he died. And that you have credible reason to believe that. For you Christians, ponder and wonder at the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and promises to bring you to the eternal celebration because he loves you. And for those of you who don't know or aren't sure what you're a Christian, I ask you, wonder what kind of a man would claim to be God, turn water into wine, show it by a miracle, then die and rise from the dead, and promise that he does it all because he loves you. That's what John wants us to ask tonight. What kind of a man does this, and what are you going to do with him? Are you going to believe him and trust your life with him? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this opportunity to once again look at your word. Thanks for how it challenges us. Thanks for the way that you show us that you love us, even in miraculous ways of turning water into wine and that uh, for what it points to, a Savior on a cross dying for our sin and a Savior rising from the dead and promising to redeem us and deliver us and bring us into the awesome incredible celebration feast. Father, help us to believe. Help us to be like the disciples, to behold the sign and to believe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.